We're in Luke chapter 24, verses 44 through 53. Mark chapter 16, 19 through 20, as well as Acts 1, 4 through 10. Both of those two passages of Scripture also talk about Christ's ascension. And I'll reference those just slightly, but I'm not going to go there. I'm going to stick with Luke 24, verses 44 through 53. For three years, many different disciples and the apostles walked with Christ through his time of teaching, healing, leading, dying, and resurrecting. They were present at many miracles and many of the confrontations that Christ dealt with. They experienced so much of the life of Christ that their bond was very strong. So today we find Jesus. We find him in the upper room finishing up his broiled fish and honeycomb, which sounds like a very interesting combination, but I'd take it. He finished it up and he was ready to give another Bible study. With sweetness on his lips and the smell of fish on his breath, he called in the disciples real close. He knew that he wasn't going to have much time left to talk to them before he ascended to the Father. Today we're looking at the ascension. Face like flint to the ascension. And Christ, if we look back in Luke chapter 9 verse 51, it tells us that um, he was looking forward to the time that he would be received up and he set his face steadfastly toward Jerusalem. And that, that when he said to be received up, that language in the original word is ascend. He had set his face toward the ascension. He knew it was going to happen. It was the Father's plan. Scripture tells us from the foundation of, uh, from the foundation of the world, the Lamb of God was slain. He knew that was coming. And he set his face toward that. The Lord, right here, as we get into verse 44, the Lord sits down one final time to help open the minds and hearts of his disciples. He teaches them what to say and assures them that the promise of God was coming. And then he led them and blesses them on their way to Bethany. He ascends to the right hand of the Father and the response of the Lord's caring and thoughtful words and the fact that gravity could not hold him. The grave couldn't hold him and neither could gravity. And because of what they had seen, they began to worship and praise him. Two things that we think are inevitable, death and gravity. And Christ defies them all in a weekend just about. Because he is who he claimed to be and that is the Son of God, Jesus Christ, the Messiah. As we open up this text, let's look there in verses 44 and 45 of Luke chapter 24. And it reads like, matter of fact, let's just read the whole thing and then I'll come back to it. Beginning there in Luke 24 in verse 44. It says, then he said to them, these are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you. That all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. And he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the scriptures. Then he said to them, Thus it is written, and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. And you are witnesses of these things. Behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you. And tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you are endued with power from on high. And he led them out as far as Bethany. And he lifted up his hands and blessed them. Now it came to pass, 
while he blessed them, that he was parted from them and carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple praising and blessing God. Amen. Point number one, the resurrected Lord opens your mind and heart to the word. Look there in verses 44 and 45. It says, he, he then says to them, These are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. And he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the scriptures. Now, if you go back into the previous few verses, matter of fact, back in earlier 20, uh, chapter 24, verses 12 through 25, the scripture tells us that, Christ, that as Cleopas and another disciple were walking out of Jerusalem, they were brokenhearted. Christ appears to them on the road, and he says, what's going on? They say, do you not know what's happened here in Jerusalem? And he's like, no, can you tell me? So they tell him. Well, when they get to the place of Cleopas's house or where they were going to stay, Jesus is like going to keep walking. And, and Cleopas is like, dude, come on in here. You, you, are, you are amazing. Please come in here and have a meal with us. Their eyes had been uh, uh, cloaked, if you will, from knowing that that truly was Jesus walking with them down the road. And so they call him in. And then when Jesus breaks the bread and he gives that to them, their eyes are open. But as they're walking down the road, this is my point in all that. I just love that, that portion. But as they're walking down the road, Jesus begins to tell them who that was, the Christ that died on the cross. And he starts at Moses and works his way back all the way up to the present day at that time. And, and so here we find ourselves in verse 44. It says, these are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you. All right. Jesus he starts off by clearly reminding them, these are the words which I spoke to you while I was with you. Jesus isn't so much chastising them for not remembering his teachings, but he is encouraging them to recall his teachings. He's not getting on to them. Man, you guys are so dull. You know, he's not getting on to them. He said, look, we know these things have happened, so let me tell you where we go from here. Let me tell you where we go from here. But you also got to take into account they're all quite overcome with the resurrected Lord appearing to them in an upper room bodily while the doors were shut and then eating fish in honeycomb. Okay? They're still overwhelmed. I don't know about you, but if somebody was dead, we all thought he was dead, his tomb was empty, and then we're all hiding in an upper room, if we were all up in the balcony up here and the sanctuary doors were locked and all the doors of the sanctuary were locked and we're all all snuggled up in the in the balcony because we'd have to be because there'd be a bunch of us you know if we were all up there and then jesus appeared to us i think we'd all be a little frightened how did they get in here we checked and we double checked the doors and these stained glass windows don't roll up you know what i'm saying so he didn't get in through a window so how did christ get up here well he's a ghost well then he asked for fish and honeycomb and he eats it in front of us oh whoa that defies all things i think i'd be a little overwhelmed as well right I would be. They were all quite overcome by Christ being present in their midst. But Jesus, Jesus doesn't leave them overcome. He doesn't leave them overwhelmed, excuse me. And he doesn't leave them in their wanderings, in their contemplations. He doesn't leave them there. And this is the thing for us. When, when we go off on our own curiosities, we can quickly go into bad theological or dangerous paths. 
But you come back to Christ. Christ was there. Christ told me, said, look at my hands, look at my feet. I assure you, it is me. When we come back to the word of God, we're not going to wander off and start getting all this heretical, crazy, nonsense teachings. Don't go to people to figure out about Jesus. Go to the Bible. Don't go to people. Now listen, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not trying to knock anybody. We got great Sunday school teachers, you know. We got, we got great Sunday school teachers here at the church. So I'm not saying that you don't go to anybody, but you be mindful to whom you go to when you want insight to the Word of God. First, you go to the Word of God. That is your first trustworthy, inerrant, infallible Word of God. That's where you go. And you can also go to other people, but make sure they're trustworthy folks, you know. Don't go off on your own curiosities and start listening to random people that you know nothing about what they believe, what denomination they come from, or, or you know, whatever it may be. Be mindful of what you're listening to. You know, Jesus doesn't leave us alone to our own contemplations and inquisitions. He answers us clearly. And the problem is, as I was just mentioning, we don't look where the answers are. We don't look where the answers are. For the disciples, their answers were in the holes in the hands and feet of Christ. For Thomas, the answers were not just in the, in the hands and feet, it was in the pierced side of Christ. But for us, it's in the Word of God. That's where we go. That's where we go. We don't go to look for some TikTok theology or some Instagram theology. We go to the Word of God. It's where we go. We are not to go to someone else for our awakening, if you will. For our ears, hearts, and minds to be open, we must go to the creator, to the creator of those things, Jesus Christ. No man can open your spiritual eyes, mind, and heart. Only Jesus can do that. Only Jesus can do that. The more we go to Christ, the more we will understand Christ, and the more we understand Christ, the more we will live by his word. So how do we apply this for ourselves? How do we apply apply the first two verses, verses 44 and 45 of this text. We need to be reading the entire Bible so we may grasp how Jesus fulfilled the prophecies for righteousness. Jesus goes all the way back to Moses. And this is pretty awesome, too. When you read this, it says that Christ, it says, these are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses. That's the first five books. The prophets, which is the large context of the Old Testament, and then the Psalms, that's the writings of David. That means read the Old Testament. It's still valuable. People today in a lot of churches, they say, well, the Old Testament's been, been uh, nullified because Christ fulfilled the law. Yes, he did, but the law still has its benefit to us. The law doesn't have the bondage to us like it used to because we are now bound to Christ which Christ is a fulfillment of the law. Matter of fact, if you're bound to Christ, it's going to be even harder. You know, all the times I preached a sermon one time with, our, with the students that I used to minister to, and I called it heart attack. Because Jesus preaches to them, and he says, he says, you've heard it said that you shall not uh, commit adultery. But I say unto you, any one of you that looks upon a, a maid with lust has committed, committed adultery in his heart. That's a little deeper than just the act, it's the thought, it's the mindset, it's the desire, it's the heart. It's an attack on the heart. So people say, I don't want to live by the law. Well, you better not want to live by Jesus then. Because Jesus goes deeper. Jesus ain't just playing with what you do. Jesus is playing with why you do it. 
Why do you do it? So we need to make sure we're reading and wrestling with those Old Testament passages and studying and praying and journaling and listening so we may come to a greater understanding of who Christ is. I've heard it said that Jesus fulfilled over 340 prophetic uh, statements from the Old Testament. That's a lot for one man to fulfill, right? I mean, even if you had a checklist... In 33 years, it'd be really difficult to one person to do all those things and then be hung on a cross, which is cursed in Jewish culture. Man, I'm telling you, there is no one else but one who is the Messiah, and that's Jesus Christ. It's Jesus Christ. If we neglect the Old Testament, it will lead us to neglect our new spirit. Anyone who is in Christ is a new creation. Behold, the old is past and the new has come. If you do not read the Old Testament, which gives us understanding of Jesus Christ, of which the New Testament is written in his blood. You know, he said, this is the blood of the New Testament. If we don't read the Old Testament to understand Jesus Christ, we're not going to get it. We're not going to get who Jesus is. Look at point number two. The resurrected Lord teaches you what to say. Look at verses 46 through 48. People say, I don't know what to say. Well, you ain't reading your Bible then. There it is. You've got to go back to your Bible. I don't know what to say. Well, this is what Jesus tells them to say. 46 through 48. Then he said to them, Thus it is written, and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be what? Preached. In his name, where? To all nations. Starting, beginning at Jerusalem. And you are witnesses of these things. Now, what is expected of us? To proclaim or preach the gospel. That's what's expected of us. Sometimes we get this mindset, it's expected of us to me to sit on a pew for one hour on Sunday. Which, yes, to a, to, to a degree, yeah. But what's more expected of you is to tell somebody about Jesus. That's more expected of you. It's more expected of you and me to tell people about Jesus than it is to be here an hour earlier than that for Sunday school. It's more expected of you and me than to be here an hour earlier than that for choir practice. It's more important than, than, than being here on Wednesday night that you go and share the gospel of Jesus Christ. The Great Commission was not go ye therefore and grow your church. It was go ye therefore and make disciples of all nations. But we think it's grow the church. The church will grow if we make disciples. But if we don't make disciples, the church is not going to grow. It's going to stagnate, just like water that comes into a, to a puddle or a pond. If it don't have an outlet, it's not going anywhere. We've got to go out and share the gospel of Jesus Christ. We, we, it's expected of us to share the gospel. And when that says preach the gospel, it ain't talking about getting up here like I do every week. Okay, don't be confused by that. It's herald. It's herald. Make known. You think about in, in medieval times, they would have a herald who would get out with a trumpet and blow the trumpet if someone was getting close to the castle. If whether it, and there were different ways that they would blow that trumpet depending on whether it was an enemy force or if it was, if it was friendly, whatever it was. But they, they knew what they had to do. We have to herald it. We have to herald the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Jesus, this is what's awesome here. Jesus reemphasizes how his death was a planned journey for him to be on. 
Look at that first, verse 46. Thus it is written, and thus it was necessary. Jesus doesn't want the disciples to think this was some off-the-cuff, reckless, moments-notice reaction by God the Father. That is not what Christ's death, burial, and resurrection was. It was very well planned out. It was written out. When he goes back to Moses and the prophets and the Psalms, it says, you see it all poured out before you. If you'll just read, go back and read, know why I'm here. Know why I'm here. I've come to seek and to save that which was lost. That's the reason why Christ came. Jesus wanted the disciples to know that, this, that God the Father had preordained this to occur in the very way it happened. In the very way it happened. You think about Jesus, and he said, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto myself. Christ said that, right? Well, where does that come from? Where does that mindset come from? It comes from the Old Testament, when the snakes were biting all the people. And he said, how am I going to deal with this? And he said, put a snake on a pole and lift it up. And anyone who looks upon the, anyone who looks up at the snake and looks at the snake on the pole, they will be healed and they'll be all right. But whoever does not will die. Same thing. Christ said, if I be lifted up, I'll draw all men to myself. When we lift Christ up, when we glorify Christ, those that look to Christ will be saved. And that's not talking about just, oh, I'm looking at a cross or, oh, I'm looking at a church. No, it's, it's a dedication to believe this is where my healing comes. This is where my salvation is found. It's in Christ. It's a belief. If you will confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised his son from the dead, you shall be saved. It's more than just a head knowledge. It's a heart knowledge. I had a pastor say, so many people will miss heaven by about 18 inches. And why is that? Because that's the distance from your head to your heart. They're going to miss heaven by 18 inches. That's wild to think about. There's going to be a lot of people in hell. But listen, this, when, when Christ gives them this, he tells them it's written. It was necessary for the Christ to suffer, to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name. All right? And I'll, I'm going to go a little further with that. So what was written and necessary? It was written and necessary for Christ to suffer. It was written and necessary for Christ to rise from the dead the third day. And what else was written and necessary? That repentance and remission of sins be preached in his name to all nations beginning in Jerusalem. It wasn't just the life of Christ. It's the life of Christ's bride. That has been written, as the scripture says, it was written and it was necessary. And it is necessary for us to preach. It was necessary for the apostles and the disciples to lead out in obedience as Christ gave them direction to do so. It says, repentance and remission of sins to be preached in his name to all nations beginning in Jerusalem. So understand this, that beginning in Jerusalem, that beginning in Jerusalem, that was the groundwork started by the disciples and the apostles. But the nations, the nations is up to us. The nations is up to us. Now, don't get me wrong, the apostles and the disciples, they did spread. If you read through Acts, Acts is not just, the title of it is, so many people don't just say it's just Acts. It's the Acts of the Apostles, or almost the Acts of the Holy Spirit through the Apostles. Because the Holy Spirit empowered them to go out and do what they did. And without the Holy Spirit, they wouldn't have done it. 
So it's the acts of the it's the acts of the Holy Spirit through the apostles. Is really should how that be titled. But you know, uh, don't get on to me for for trying to fix the the titles of books. I'm not trying to fix the Bible itself, but the title of the books. Many of your Bibles will say the Acts of the Apostles with Acts Lars. But if they did not have the Holy Spirit, they wouldn't have been able to do it. I'm going to talk about that in just a minute. I'm going to try to pronounce this fellow's name. Thabiti Anubwili. He said, um, the Lord tells the disciples they must preach repentance and forgiveness of sins to all nations, starting right there in Jerusalem. They can't remain locked in the upper room. They must go out to the very people who murdered Jesus and to the world telling others that he is risen and there is forgiveness with God. That's their purpose. And they must do this in the power of the promise of God, the Holy Spirit. That's how we get our power. That We have no power in and of ourselves. Before I get ahead of myself, let me stop there. Notice what our message is. Our message is that of repentance our message is of remission and forgiveness of sins. That's what our message is when we go out. Repentance and forgiveness of sins. And then the Holy Spirit does the rest of it. That's what we are to speak. What a disciple is to preach and share is the reason for repentance and how that repentance is rewarded, the forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses we are witnesses. Look there in verse 48. And you are witnesses of these things. Now, he's talking to the apostles. The apostles saw Christ firsthand, firsthand account. Now, obviously, we don't have firsthand account of what Christ did. But we are witnesses in that we have been changed. We have been changed. And when we experience something life-changing, we tell about it, don't we? We tell about it. When you became a parent, you told people about that. When you became a grandparent, you told people about that. If you are a great-grandparent, you told people about that. When your life has been changed by Jesus Christ, you're going to tell somebody about that. There's some kind of joy to, to hold a newborn baby is one of the lyrics, one of the songs we sang last week. There's a lot of joy in that. There's a lot to tell about that. I mean, there is a lot to that. Eddie and Maggie bringing their grandchild today. Boy, they're proud. They're excited. Don't get me wrong. That's, that's something to have joy over. But there is, there's new life in that child, but there's new life in each one of us who have confessed Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. There's a new life. There's not just, you're not just turning over a leaf. You're brand new. You're brand new. Brand new things work different than old things, right? And even if you repair it, it ain't quite the same. It ain't quite the same. So when we look at this, we're, we're no longer just existing. We have a purpose for living. And it is to tell people about the risen Savior. And to tell them there is, there is forgiveness of sins, but forgiveness of sins comes through repentance. It comes through repentance. Mark 1.15, Jesus said, Behold, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Repentance is what we preach. Listen, the love of Christ, great. The grace of God, yes, for it is by grace through faith that you are saved, not of works, lest any man should boast, Ephesians 2.8. But I want to tell you something. If people don't know why they are lost, 
They're not going to know why they need to be saved. I'm doing good. What do you mean? What do you mean I need to be saved? I'm doing well. Because we view that through a material, societal lens. We don't view it through a spiritual lens. So many people don't. But if you'll put that lens of spirituality, give them those glasses. You ever been to the eye doctor? Like, click, 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 click. How's this? How's the clarity? Click, 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 click. You know what I'm saying? It's the same way with that. Let's put the lens on there. Let's flip through there. How are we? Let's, let's load the Ten Commandments up into those lens right there. Flick, flick, flick. You ever, you ever lied? Flick, flick, flick. Where's your clarity? You ever committed adultery? Click, click, click. Let's get that, let's get that vision straightened out. And when you, when you realize, when we realize all the sins that we've committed, we're going to see with clarity how much we need a Savior. We're going to see with clarity how much we need a Savior. So how can we gather, when we look at how we apply these verses, verses 46 through 48, so how can we gather what Christ wants us to say? We read the scriptures. Listen, it seems like each week I come back to the word of God. You know why? Because that's where I start. That's where I start. And so if, if, if we can gather, so what, you know, how can we gather what Christ wants us to say? We go back here. We spend time in the Word of God. We participate in Sunday school. And we come into worship in the sanctuary. It's what we do. If you don't have a church home, find it here. If you got a church home, go be present. You know what I mean? I'm... I'm not mad at nobody that, that, that's got another church home. Fine. Just be faithful. Be faithful. But if you ain't got one, come here. Be faithful here. We want you here. The Lord may even want you here. But I'll tell you what, we want you here. Then you can figure out, you can pray and talk to the Lord about whether or not you really need to be here, but we want you here. Because <laughs> that's a decision between you and the Lord. You know, where you need to be. But what should we do with what Christ wants us to say? What should we do with it? Witness. Verse 48, and you are my witnesses of these things. Listen, witnessing is not something we do for the Lord. It is something that he does through us if we are filled with the Holy Spirit. There is a great difference between a sales talk and a spirit-empowered witness. There's a difference. People do not come to Christ at the end of an argument, Vance Havner said. Simon Peter came to Jesus because Andrew went after him with a testimony. Come see the Christ. Come see him. We go forth in the authority of Christ's name, in the power of the Spirit, heralding his gospel of his grace. That's what Warren Wearsby says. That's how we go. Point number three, the resurrected Lord sends the promise of the Father. Acts 1.8, which is recorded uh, test, which is the recorded testimony of the Lord's conversation with the apostles right before he ascended into heaven. He says, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you shall be witnesses unto me in Jerusalem and in Judea and of all Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And so uh, the Lord sends the promise, which is the Holy Spirit. What is the work of the Holy Spirit? The work of the Holy Spirit, one thing we got to understand is this. The Holy Spirit's not sent to the world. The Holy Spirit's sent to the church. The Holy Spirit's sent to the church. So, in understanding that, just hold on to that thought for a minute. John 16, 5 through 15, tells us what the Holy Spirit does. The Holy Spirit convicts the world of sin. The Holy Spirit convicts the world of righteousness. The Holy Spirit convicts the world of judgment. 
Okay, that's what he does. Now that word convict, it's got two different meanings as I was reading in one of my commentaries. It can mean conviction and it can also mean convince. To convince someone. So you convince them of their sin. That's what the Holy Spirit does. Because the Holy Spirit leads them to the Son, right? It's not his job to judge. That's the Son's job, right? He's been given all authority in heaven and on earth. has been given unto me. Matthew 28, 18. He is the one who's been given the authority to judge. But the Holy Spirit doesn't have that. He's been given the authority to convince. And why is that? Because he's within us. And we are not to judge. We are to convince people they are in need of a Lord and Savior. So the Holy Spirit works in us. Why sin? Because they don't believe in Jesus. Why convince them of righteousness? Because I go to the Father and you see me no more. Why does he convince them of judgment? Because the ruler of this world is judged. And if you are a child of the ruler of the world, then you're going to be judged appropriately as he's been judged. But not through the Holy Spirit, but by the Son after you die. So we convince them first of their sin. How does the Holy Spirit work? Okay, we just talked about what is the work of the Holy Spirit. How does the Holy Spirit work? The Holy Spirit does not minister in a vacuum, okay? The Holy Spirit, just as the Son of God needed a body to do his work on the earth, so the Holy Spirit also needs a body. That's the body of the church. That's the church. You know, um, when the Holy Spirit came at Pentecost, he, uh, he empowered Peter to preach. And the preaching of the word brought conviction on all who heard. The Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit does not float like a ghost. Okay? The Holy Spirit does not float like a ghost in some ghostly way going up and down the aisles. You know, we, we think about that, right? But the Holy Spirit is indwelling every believer. He's indwelling us. He's not floating around like Casper the friendly ghost. You know what I'm saying? He's, he's alive in us. And by that, we are the outworking of the Holy Spirit. It is the work of the Spirit through the witness of the believers to expose the unbelief of the lost world. The Spirit of God reveals the Savior of the world, uh, excuse me, the Savior in the Word, and in this way glorifies Him. The Spirit also reveals Christ in the lives of believers. The world cannot receive or see the Spirit of God, but they can see what He does as they watch the lives of dedicated believers. The Holy Spirit works to reveal the lost sinner's folly and evil of unbelief. He convinces them. Get that in your mind. Get the word convince in your mind of their folly and evil of unbelief. He convinces, and, uh, and hopefully the unbeliever will confess that he does not measure up, or she, to the righteousness of Christ, and he will realize that he is under the condemnation and belongs uh, to the world and the devil. That is the work of the, this is the work of judgment of the Spirit. It's of convincing. He's convincing them. So what, what do we apply out of this passage of Scripture? When we look at verse, at verse 49 alone. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, we are to speak the words that Christ gave in verses 46 and 47 and rest and trust in the work of the Holy Spirit. And listen, we are not the Holy Spirit. We are not the Holy Spirit. We are but a vessel of the work of the Holy Spirit. We will evidence the fruit of the Holy Spirit 
but we are still not the Holy Spirit. We are indwelt in the Holy Spirit. He is the indwelling of God within us while Jesus sits at the right hand of the Father interceding for us and the Father is accepting is watching over us. Listen, there is, there is poor language in the church today. People say you need to accept Jesus Christ as, as Lord of your heart. You need to accept Jesus into your heart. Incorrect. Nowhere in the Bible do you find that language that you need to accept Jesus into your heart. Romans 10, 9 and 10 says that if you will confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart that God raised his son from the dead, you shall be saved. Okay? Who dwells within me? I need to accept Jesus into my heart. Who dwells within me when I confess Jesus Christ as Lord? The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit dwells within me. Jesus is sitting at the right hand of the Father right now. He's not living in me. Oh, it's controversial stuff right here now. Hold up. People say, Jesus is living in me. Well, you ain't read your Bible. And listen, I'm not getting on to you, okay, because I've said it before. I've said it before. But that's not true. The Holy Spirit, who is just as much God as the Son of God, and the Holy Spirit, who is just as much God as the Father, He's dwelling in you. But Jesus ain't dwelling in you. He's sitting on the throne. Scripture tells us he's sitting at the right hand of the Father. In I think it's Romans 12, uh, or maybe it's Romans, it's Romans 10. It says, when all was completed, he sat down at the right hand of the Father. When all righteousness, all that was done to be done for righteousness was done. That's where Jesus is. But the Holy Spirit is indwelling us. Jesus said, if I don't leave, the helper won't come. And, if, and when I go, you'll do greater things than I did. Why is that? Because the indwelling of God through the Holy Spirit is within each and every one of us. Jesus is not living in each and every one of us. The Holy Spirit is. And we'll be able to do these things that Christ says we can. I know that's controversial because I've heard that my whole life. Jesus is living in my heart. No, he's not. The Holy Spirit's living in your heart. You've confessed him as Lord, so therefore from his throne, as the Lord does, he rules and reigns over my life by, by the communication of the Holy Spirit. The communication. The Bible tells us that the Holy Spirit is, is our seal until the day of redemption. He's like the landlord over this body. And Jesus is up there saying, I own the property. But the landlord's managing it. <laughs> He sealed me to the day of redemption. And when Christ calls me back, I won't need the Holy Spirit anymore. So he'll break that seal and I'll have a glorified body. And I'll live in the presence of Christ, glorified, perfect, whole, as he intended our lives to be when we're in heaven. I don't need to be sealed by the Holy Spirit anymore because that's what's keeping me from hell. It's what's keeping you from hell. All right, let's keep going. Got a little off topic there for a second. But I thought you might need to know that. It's important information. So let's, let, let's think about this. Think about what it means when Christ returned to heaven. It says, uh, uh, think of what it meant to Jesus to return to heaven and sit on the throne of glory. His ascension, I thought this was really good. His ascension is proof that he has conquered every enemy. Every enemy. Because the Bible says that they will be made a footstool unto him. He has conquered every enemy. 
in that he reigns supremely far above all. Ephesians 1, 18-23 is where that idea comes from. When he's sitting on that throne, everything is his footstool. The earth will be his footstool, the scripture tells us. And he's sitting on the throne. As confessing believers in the Lordship of Jesus Christ, we are to follow him in his leading. And we are not the line leaders. You think about VBS, or you think about stuff like that, you've got the teacher that's leading the line, and there's a rope. And we're all holding the rope, and we're holding it because we want uniformity and visibility of the leader. Right? And that's what we're doing. We're holding the line. And we're walking, and we're following our Savior. And as he leads us, we go. And wherever... Where he leads today isn't as important as are we following wherever that may be. Listen to that again. I, I, had to, I typed it out and I thought, wow, that's, that's interesting. Where he leads us today isn't as important as are we following wherever that may be. It doesn't matter where he leads, but are you following wherever it may be? Are you following? For the disciples at this moment, it was physically to Bethany. Physically to Bethany, leading them out on a hillside. Notice the last thing the Lord did was to bless them. He blesses them and puts his hands on them. Look at point number five. The resurrected Lord causes you to praise and worship. Look at verses 50 through 52. Uh, 53, 52, uh, 52 through 53. I'm going to get it right in a minute. And they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple praising and blessing God. Hang on just a minute. I skipped a little bit. Y'all are probably like, yeah, okay. 50 to 51. Let me read that passage of Scripture because that's important for us to know too. It's important for us to know too. All right, I won't spend much time there. And he led out as far as Bethany and lifted up his hands and blessed them. Now it came to pass while he blessed them that he was parted from them and carried into heaven. Okay, let me, let me pause there for just a minute. Because you need to know, listen, I'm not just up here to teach you. I also want you to know that the Lord wants to bless you. Okay, and when you follow him, he's going to bless you. These disciples, these apostles had followed him out to Bethany and he raises his hands and he is blessing them. He is blessing them. I mean, can you imagine what that must be like for the Lord himself? I mean, he blesses me every day. But it's, and he blesses me. He gives me the Holy Spirit. I'm blessed because I got the Holy Spirit. I'm blessed because I know I got a home in heaven. I'm blessed because I got a wonderful wife. I got wonderful children that God, God's blessed me with. He's given me a great church family to be able to minister in and with and through and everything else. Man, he's blessed me. But could you imagine the hands who hold the universe? reaching up to the Father and calling down blessings on those disciples and apostles that followed him up on that hill. It wasn't so far long ago that, that he just had a little bit of honeycomb in his mouth and broiled fish on his breath, and he's about to have heavenly breath, <laughs> the freshest breath you've ever seen. He's going to be going back to the Father, but he's, he's blessing them, and he's got those hands reached out, and, and he's probably out in front, but he's not too distant. He's, he's talking to them about what they are going to see going forward and what they're going to deal with going forward. He's preparing them mentally, physically, emotionally, spiritually for life without him there bodily. He gets to his desired stopping point and he turns to them and he's looking them all in the face. 
and he raises his hand and he's calling to the Father to empower them, to defend them, to prolong their ministries and to keep them uh, healthy and enduring and, and give reception to the message that he knew that they were going to send and take with them. And he's doing all this. And then, then, as he's blessing them, the scripture says, and while he blessed them, there in verse 51, that he was parted from them and carried up into heaven. I mean, here he goes. The death grave has no power over him. He's up out of it. Not only does the grave have no power, gravity has no power over him. He's ascending back to the Father. And one day gravity won't have a hold on us either. The Bible tells us, if you were in Sunday school this morning, 1 Thessalonians 5, 1 through 11, we'll be called up in there too. That's the reason why, like I said, we believe in a bodily resurrection. One day we'll be up there with him. We'll be up there with him. How amazing is that? And when I think about the apostles and the disciples and how the Lord, it tells us that he taught them from the law of Moses, the prophets and the Psalms, it makes me think about, I wonder when they were seeing him being taken up, if they were taken back to Isaiah, when he saw the Lord high and lifted up, and he, and he said, and the disciples were probably thinking in their minds, just as Isaiah said, he said, uh, here am I, send me. Here am I. Send me. Sometimes we're just going to need to look up. We need to look up and realize all that Christ has given to us and for us and say, here am I. Send me.